David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Last week I spoke about 500 to 700, what we call the early Gaonic period. And I'm going to cover basically from 700 to 900 this evening. And next week we're going to look at just at the 10th century, at the 900s, because there's so much going on there. But right now we're going to talk about two centuries. I don't need a timeline to show you what 700 to 900 looks like. We'll talk about what that world is in just a moment. But what is important is a map. So this, of course, is the Mediterranean. And Spain is here. North Africa is here. Not to scale, but you know how it goes. Now, when we open the period I'm talking about tonight, so we move into around about the year 700, which is where we ended last week. Let's look at what this world is and what it looks like. And we start really with looking at political or geopolitical domains. And the first thing that strikes us, especially if we were looking at the difference between this week's opening and last week's opening, is that if you rock back in a time machine to around about the, in the first decade of the 8th century, of the 700s, and you hadn't been there since a century before, you would be astonished to see that the Persian Empire, of course, is no more. A number of things are no more. And that what rules this entire part of the world is Islam. And that has happened in less than a century. From around about 630 onwards. So in 70, 80 years, that's now Islam, and it is more or less politically unified under the banner of the Umayyad Caliphate. The Umayyads. Oh, well, we're... That difference, that difference has kind of already a story that has begun and is going to play out. Um, but all the various designations of Islam are combined by the Umayyad, are ruled by the Umayyad Caliphate. Now, for the purposes of Jewish history, and there is a lot of detail to go into. If this was a talk on the Umayyad Caliphate, I would have started in the middle of the 600s and we would go forward and I'll show you how that rose up. But what we need to understand for our purposes now is that what's the most important event in Jewish history really that is about to happen that's really going to change a lot of detail about what we know and what's going to happen. And that is, of course, that in the year 711, Islam as a general rubric, but more specifically the Berbers, who were a people living in roundabout, you know, Morocco and northwest in the Maghreb, northwest Africa, who had sometime in the preceding couple of generations converted to Islam, 
were had kind of their own thing going on, were nominally under the umbrella of the Umwaid Caliphate. They crossed over here and conquered Spain. That is, uh, of course, those who want to go into the Moorish conquest of Spain. Yep. I mean, Tariq al-Ziyad. That's why Gibraltar is called Gibraltar, because it's Jabar al-Tariq. He moved in. And the Muslims are not going to call it Spain. They're going to call it Al-Andalus. Just before, however, this is a big moment, but before that happens, I just want to touch on, and I should have touched upon this before I did that. <coughs> before this was Al-Andalus, this was Hispania. Who ruled here? Who ruled in Spain before that Islamic invasion of 711? When we say Christians, that's very broad. Well, the Romans have been a, you know, a while gone. It's ruled by the Visigoths. Not just Christians, the Visigoths. And their particular outlook was a little different from what was going on in Central and Western Europe up here. And the Visigoths were not benevolent rulers towards Jews that were living in Spain. There were Jewish communities and individual Jews, quite a number, that had already been living in Spain since the Roman Empire. Those Jews suffered quite considerably in terms of religiously, economically, and in many other ways, under the Visigoth rulers. Didn't like Jews. It never ceases to astonish me that the nations of the world have not learnt the simple guiding rule that if you are not benevolent to your Jews, your civilization is going to collapse. I cannot think in the last 2,000 years of one exception to that. Conversely, if you are benevolent to your Jews, your civilization will thrive. I cannot think of a single exception to that. There's like a rule of history that is amazing that people don't actually absorb. Countries should not be kicking out their Jews, they should be welcoming their Jews. Now, as it happens, we're not yet at the golden age of Spain. People don't need to get excited right now. Spain's just been conquered by the Moors. But the Jews that were living there welcomed that. Many of those Jews that had to be living falsely under Christianity, the way their you know, Jews in Spain much, much later would have to, they even helped the invasion. So the big turning point we have to understand historically as well, and this is important, the big turning point is not specifically to Jewish history, but to world history, but has a profound effect on us and definitely needs to be understood in the context of what I'm going to talk about tonight. And that is that, you know, Islam being Islam, it doesn't have a natural tendency to halt its own progress in terms of territorial conquest. And of course, it soon becomes apparent that if they've conquered Spain, well, 
What's next? In fact, you know, it was one of the early caliphs of the Rashidun Caliphate, I think Omar Uthman, who had actually said that the way to capture Constantinople, and Constantinople is here, and throughout the 7th century Islam and 8th century Islam had a couple of cracks at it, but couldn't take Constantinople from the Byzantine Empire. But he said, actually, the way you get to the Constantinople is from the West. Conquer Spain, conquer all the way through Europe, and you'll take Constantinople. However, the Islamic invasion of Europe, and it was a big invasion, it was a big army and some concentrated efforts to move from Al-Andalus, from the Iberian Peninsula, into, Gaul, into France, into the Frankish kingdoms of, Fr of Lower France and ultimately Germany. But who stopped them? It was Charles Martel, a Frankish king called Charles Martel, at the famous Battle of Tours in 732 stopped the Moors of the Islam expanding into Europe. That is a world history defining moment. All historians will tell you if Martel had not stopped them then it was only a matter of time before all Europe would have become Islamic. Yeah? <coughs> that may sound strange to us but uh, Hitler, Yemachshumor, was very annoyed with Charles Martel because he thought that Islam was a much more appropriate religion for the German people than Christianity. History could have gone a very different way. But Charles Martel stopped Islam at the Battle of Tours. That, of course, is why he's Charlemagne's grandfather. And we're going to see that, the rise of not just the Frankish kingdoms, but the rise of the Frankish Empire. Because if you stop Islam invading Europe, Europe owes you. And that's why that Frankish kingdom is going to go on to become a huge empire that we're going to look at in a second. But we need to go back to Babylonia. Now, for the next few minutes, I need to talk about what's going on in the Islamic world. And some of you are going to sit here and going, why would I need to know about internal revolutions in the Islamic world? What's that got to do with me and Jewish history? Well, for one, it's got to do with world history. And anything to do with world history has to do with Jewish history. But secondly, let me ask you this question. Do you think it's possible to have a proper understanding of Jewish history of, say, the 20th century without being aware of events like the Cold War? Do you think that's possible? No. Like World War I. These events that happen in, on the world stage are crucially impactful on Jewish history. So we're going to spend some minutes looking at what happens inside the Umayyad Caliphate because by the time we get to the middle of the 700s, and I'm still really only backgrounding some of the things we're going to really be focusing on tonight, but as soon as we talk about the middle of the 700s, there is a revolution. And the Umayyad Caliphate collapses and is vanquished and is gone replaced by a new caliphate and a new dynasty 
and a new ideology. It's not simply a blood feud or a or a um, <coughs> or just someone else who's hungry for power. This was an ideological shift, and that's why we call the Abbasid Caliphate the Abbasid Revolution. It was a revolution. It started over here, it spread, and eventually led to the downfall of the Umayyad Caliphate to be replaced by the Abbasid Caliphate. Because it's ideological, it is of significance. What was the fundamental, and not to mention the fact that they then shifted, shifted the base of operations of the Islamic Empire in a very, very impactful way, which we'll see in a second, because they moved it from the Umayyad capital was in Damascus, and because much of their power came from the east, and their backing came from the east, they moved it slightly eastward, not hugely, but they moved it to a new city that the Abbasids built in the middle of the 700s, a new city called Baghdad. What was the fundamental ideological difference between the Umayyad and the Abbasid Caliphate? is that the Umayyads believed in the fundamental superiority of Arabs versus other peoples and within Arab society of their own noble houses. They were not into sharing power. So positions within the Umayyad Caliphate depended on your racial background and also upon your own particular yichus. That really, really annoyed the millions of people that had just converted to Islam and were told that Islam prizes and values equality. So much so, in fact, that people were still required to pay the jizya tax, which was placed upon non-Muslims like Jews and Christians, even after they'd converted to Islam because they came from a non-Arab minority. As you can imagine, that also annoyed people. So at the end of the day, the Abbasid revolution within the world of Islam in the 700s was a revolution about equality. The capital moves from Damascus to Baghdad, and we move from the Umayyad to the Abbasid rule. It's very important for us to understand that when the Abbasids came to power, and they came to power not in a particularly peaceful way, there was a lot of bloodshed. Might have been a revolution in the name of equality, but there was a lot of bloodshed. And the Abbasid rulers immediately set about exterminating completely any remnants of the Umayyad Caliphate, which is why the last surviving individual of that Umayyad Caliphate, a prince called Abdul Rahman, makes his way secretly, just him and a companion, one of the great legendary journeys, all the way across North Africa, hiding all of the time, and eventually into Andalus, into Spain, where he set up an Umayyad emirate that is going over the next couple of centuries to become a restored Umayyad caliphate
from Spain. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that next week because that's going to become the big Cordovan Caliphate, etc. So here's the picture once we get to the middle of the century is that we've got the Abbasid Caliphate ruled from Baghdad, an Umayyad Emirate here, and in a moment I'll be talking about what's going on here, but this is still Christian, you've got various kingdoms, but for the second half of the century it's really going to be about Charles Martel, his son Pepin, his son Charles who's going to go on to become Charlemagne, and so on. We'll get back to that in a minute. I need to go back to Babylonia. Because what is, let's remind ourselves, what is the defining feature of the Gaonic period? Why is it called the Gaonic period? Because who were the Gaonim? They were the heads of the two great academies of Sura and Pumbedita, who now find themselves not in some backwater Jewish community in relation to the centers of power, but in fact very, very close to the Abbasid rule of basically half the known world. From the, Islam now ruled from the, and the, and the Abbasids ruled from the Indus Valley all the way through to Spain. That's an astonishing empire and the center of it was right where the Talmudic academies of Babylonia were led by the Geonim. Now, the Abbasids kind of were, for the most part, tolerant towards Jews. And they relied on cordial and good relations with the leaders of the Jewish community, notably, notably, the Resh Galuta. Remember we spoke about that last week? The Exilarch. The Geonim were intellectual and spiritual heads, but the Rish Galuta, the head of the exile, was the political leader. That's as they had dealt with Persian emperors before. Now they were dealing, and just as they had dealt with the Umayyad Caliphate, now they're dealing with the Abbasid Caliphate. They're the ones, the Exilarchs, the ones who've got money. Well, some of them have, but yeah, they've they got prestige, they've they got backing, even if they don't have their own money, they'll have someone's money. The uh, important thing to understand also about the Abbasid Revolution and its impact is that we're now kind of focusing on... Look, it's not yet a full-blown renaissance, okay? But there is a kind of increased focus on the potential and abilities of individuals. If you fight a revolution in the name of equality because everyone is equal, then everyone is an everyone. People can now get positions in government and in trade and in the military and in other areas based on their merits more. Like I said, we're not at full-blown enlightenment, emancipation, etc. But there is a shift towards individuals and that shift towards individuals is reflected in some of the religious and theological trends that are happening in that part of the world at this time. Now we haven't got time to focus on all of that because I want to zoom down now into what the impact of that was for the Jewish world.
And the most important thing you need to realize about the middle of the 700s, if we are now zooming into Babylonia and we are looking at that world, particularly intellectually, and I can't overstate how important the intellectual world was for Babylonian Jewry, which was the absolute center of the Jewish world around which all other communities orbited. And what we find is that people are starting to extract from the Talmud individual guides for halachic behavior. <coughs> Now, some of you might sit there and go, I have no idea what that means. Or you're sitting there going, how interesting is that not? But I need to, I need to, I, need, I just need to pull you back a moment to make you realize how important that is. And let me remind you, those of you who are sitting here with any misapprehensions about this, what I'm about to say will come as a shock to some of you, but to others it will be okay. And that is, the big secret is, <coughs> Judaism didn't always look like it does today. No. no. It has gone through phases of flux and transition. Yep. The problem with the Talmud as your primary oceanic text by which you derive some kind of guidance for life is that it is incredibly enormous and it doesn't give you any conclusions. And it's really, really difficult to study. And it's really, really hard to understand. And the whole intellectual activity of the academies of Babylonia were trying to understand this text and to transmit it to the next generation. But it wasn't until the middle of the 700s that some people started to say, maybe we could extract various digests of halakha out of the Talmud and we start to see the very, very beginnings of authored texts that are effectively codes. They're not really yet codes, they're what we might call proto-codes. One very interesting one, which is probably the first authored text after the Talmud in Jewish history, is a book called the Sheiltot, written by Rav Achai Gaon, who was passed over as the Gaon of Pombadita and therefore bogged off to the land of Israel and wrote the Sheiltot. And the Sheiltot is a very creative book which has no kind of previous template by which to do this, but takes the weekly Torah readings from the synagogue and elaborates on them, citing and usually focusing on one particular law. And then elaborating on what the details of that law would be. And that law would be a theme of that particular week's reading. Now, well, for, for example, right, in the, I think in one of the Torah, the Torah reading that deals with the, uh, with the marriage of Isaac. So he would spend that particular essay dealing with the laws of marriage. There were legal, let's say, on Noah. Yeah? 
he would talk about theft. Theft was regarded as one of the big things of the generation of the floods. He'd talk about the laws of it. For example, yeah, different theme and expanding about that. It's not a code, but you can see that there is an attempt there to try and develop a kind of fixed narrative about what Jewish law looked like. No one outside the Geonim of Babylonia and their immediate students, no one was really sure. There are no books and not even copies of the Talmud. And then we get a figure like Yehudai Gaon, one of the most famous and biggest Geonim of the 8th century that you may not necessarily come across unless you're in a this talk that was dealing at this level of detail. But Yehudai Gaon is the Gaon of Surah. According to some sources, he was blind, which makes it more amazing. But he extracted from the Talmud a text called Halachic Decisions. And it dealt with a range of topics, and it just brought from the Talmud whatever opinion he thought was the actual decision, but basically breaking it down for you according to how things are done and how things are lived. He was followed by another important figure in the middle of the 700s called Shimon Kayara, who never actually became a Gaon, who wrote a book called Halachot Gedolot, the big Halachot. Now, scholars are not entirely sure what came first, the Halachot Pesukot, or the Halachot Gedolot, and they're not a thousand percent sure either which of these two wrote which. But the general opinion is, is that the Sukkot was written by Yehudai Gaon and expanded upon by Shimon Kayara, but it's possible that Sukkot was actually a condensation of the Halachot Gedolot that had already been written into a shorter form. We're not, remember, remember what I said at the beginning of last week's talk, when we deal with the Gaonic, in many cases, we're peering through the mists of time. But what important thing to take from here is that we can start to see some attempt to codify Jewish law and Jewish practice for individuals. And because people were asking for these things. Now, I don't talk about anything that's not important. And we're going to come back to these and we're going to look at them. But for now, we're going to talk about things that are happening in the middle of the 700s. And I want everything I'm about to talk about now, I want you to understand in the light of what I've just discussed. In one of the most astounding and important episodes for us to understand in the middle of the 700s is the story of, and once again, we're peering through the mists of time, is the story of a figure that we know as... Anan ben David. Yeah? Now, later literature, later Gaonic and medieval literature will tell you. You're smiling because you know who that is? Oh, sorry. I don't know. Yeah, no, that's okay. <laughs> later literature will tell you that the reason that Anan ben David did what he did is because he was hurt and upset as you probably would be, 
because he was passed over for the job of Exilarch. He was of the Exilarchic family. He looked around. He thought, oh, look at my generation. It's got to be me, right? My uncle, when he goes, my uncle's the Rejigaluta, but when I look at the contemporaries of mine who are descendants of that family, it's got to be me. And it wasn't. They chose someone else. That's what later literature will tell you. But we're not 100% sure of the motives of Anand ben David. But what he did is fascinating in the light of the background I just explained, that just in the middle of the 700s, they are just starting to codify potentially rabbinic literature. And Anand ben David gets up and he says, the Talmud, this thing that all of you for hundreds of years now have been sticking your head in. And let me tell you, because I didn't go into detail, and I, and I probably should have, Yehudai Gaon is, didn't just write a halachic digest. He was absolutely determined, on the one hand, to assert the preeminence of the Babylonian Talmud over the Palestinian Talmud, and to make the Babylonian Talmud an effective scripture, an absolute lock, stock, barrel authority on what Judaism is. If it's not in the Talmud, it's not Judaism. I'll say that again. If it's not in the Talmud, it's not Judaism. The Talmud has the basic practical effect as scripture. It's a huge shift to try and do that, and he succeeded in doing that. So that's why it's not surprising that just around about that time, Anand ben David gets up and he says, this Talmud is bunk. That didn't come from Moses. The Wabbis, they made it up. They made it up and began a cult that either directly or indirectly, and scholars are still, <coughs> you know, the jury is out on, the, on exactly what the story is of the direct influence, but there's no question that Anand ben David was the progenitor of an entire movement in the Jewish world that was anti-Talmudic and anti-Rabbinic and spread extensively so that by the time of the end of the Gonic period this movement is going to comprise estimates between 10 to 20 percent of the entire Jewish population of the world were Karaite. The on the one hand, on the one hand, the Islamic background of literal reading, literally the Quran, was a very influential dogma on how texts are to be approached. It is a much more equalizing way of looking at the Bible because at the end of the day, I don't need to be a scholar or ask the opinion of a scholar 
about what God said to me, I just look at the Bible. It's the same thing, not, I mean, kind of different, but in some ways similar with the whole Protestant revolution regarding scripture that happened in the 16th century in Europe. Massive movement, which we will come back to, and especially next week I'll be talking about the Carol. We need to understand Anand ben David is a very, very important shift. And the other interesting thing, if we're talking about topics of history and we're still on the 700s, is that we need to talk about this topic. I will talk more about this topic next week, but I just want to highlight it in its place. And that is that at some point we believe or most historians believe there is some basis to this in historical fact, but it's very, very misty. But at, we understand that at some point in the middle of the 700s, a kingdom sitting on the border of the Islamic world here converts to Judaism. They, of course, are the Khazars. Now, there are a number of different historical artifacts that have given us to understand about the existence of the Khazars. <coughs> but the basic story comes to us in two, type, two forms. One is the famous letter to Khastai ibn Shaprut, which we are going to discuss next week. Hasta ibn Shaprut is not here this week. He's here next week. And he was sent a letter by the Khazars. And then, in the beginning of the 20th century, Solomon Schechter found in the Cairo Geniza what's now known as the Schechter letter, which was a letter, apparently from the Khazars, addressed to someone. We're not sure, but it's in the Cairo Geniza. It's very old. Slightly different story about what's going on. We know, of course, because Yehuda Halevi, the 12th century poet, not just a street in Tel Aviv, but a 12th century poet, famously wrote his book, The Kuzari, based on the legendary story of King Bulan, who invited the clerics of various faith systems to argue the benefits of their religion in front of him and he chose Judaism. Not a bad choice if you are wedged between the Christian and the Islamic worlds. Not a bad choice. Other versions tell us that there was a chap called Yitzhak Sangari, very mystical figure, who was deeply involved in the conversion of the king of the Khazars, but we understand broad terms that if this thing existed and according to others they were in touch with rabbis in Babylonia who talk about them a bit, if it existed it lasted for the next two and a half to three centuries. But it's an important topic in Jewish history and I raise it even though, even though there are some contemporary historians and scholars who now believe that the whole thing it never happened. It's all one great big phantasmagation of the medieval thought. But there are enough historians who believe that the evidence points to the existence of some kind of quasi-Judaic entity. So 
we arrive there at around about the year 800 and as soon as we say the year 800 it immediately makes us realize that as interesting as the Khazars are we have to shift our attention to Europe let me take out the words Umayyad and Abbasid there because that's going to be confusing because I'm talking now about Europe Western Europe France Germany and what we find has been happening in the last few decades is that through the efforts of Charles Martel and his son Pepin and his son Charles as I said earlier that we, they have gone from just a Frankish kingdom to a Frankish empire that is now by the year 800 in a position to control France what is today France Germany and Italy and that is why in the year 800 Charles the grandson of Charles Martel who we know is Charlemagne because that just means Charles Magnus is crowned in Aachen in Germany as the first Holy Roman Empire Emperor all of Europe Western Europe is now unified that's what the whole thing about the euro and all of that is a unified Europe they create a unified Europe under one Christian ruler overall the Holy Roman Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire not the Roman Empire but a new version of it called the Holy Roman Empire united not merely politically but religiously as well this is a Christian Empire and it has a Pope because we're now <coughs> aligning ourselves but Byzantium is still going but now Europe has become fully Christian our spiritual leader is the Pope in Rome and our temporal ruler is Charlemagne the Holy Roman Emperor now This is why we need to learn history because we shouldn't make silly errors. We should understand some things. We all make silly errors. But we should always not just deal with broad strokes and generalizations. We need to look at things in a bit more detail to understand. What do you think the impact of that was for the Jewish communities and Jews living in that area it was good because Charlemagne and his son Louis the pious liked Jews I know that sounds incredible because someone with the name Louis the pious sounds like they're going to be an anti-Semite for sure <laughs> but if Charlemagne liked Jews his son Louis really liked Jews. This is all part of what was happening in the early decades of the 800s in Europe, in Western Europe, that is now referred to as the Carolingian Renaissance. Because Charlemagne and definitely Louis were interested not merely in edicts of toleration, and basically Louis lost his throne effectively because he was so tolerant of Jews, 
that not only of an era of toleration, but also an era where they tried to grow scholastically and with art and music and architecture. This is the Carolingian Renaissance and Jews did very, very well there. You know that um, the year before he was crowned emperor, Charlemagne uh, sent uh, a delegation to the caliph of the Abbasid Caliphate, the fifth caliph, a very important figure called Harun al-Rashid. And he sent a diplomatic embassy of friendship. And in that, along with that embassy went a few Jews because they were diplomats appointed by Charlemagne and they had gone to see Harun al-Rashid. Harun al-Rashid, very impressed, and he forms a friendship with Charlemagne and sends him back gifts. One of the gifts that he sent him back, back to Charlemagne, a gift that was delivered by a Jewish emissary called Isaac, a Frankish Jew appointed by Charlemagne to bring back from Baghdad to Aachen. Anyone know? What? An elephant. Probably the most famous elephant in history called an elephant called Abul Abbas. Abul Abbas, very, very famous elephant. And Yitzhak traveled, Isaac traveled with this elephant from Harun al-Rashid. Well, an amazing story. Took him two years, but he traveled with this elephant all the way across North Africa. And wherever they went, it was like, oh, I'm, 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 I work for Charlemagne in Europe, but I'm just coming from Baghdad with an elephant. All the way. And then Charlemagne met up with emissaries who told him that, dude, not dude, that was King Dude, that uh, Isaac's coming back, and he's coming back with an elephant from Harun al-Rashid. So Charlemagne sent ships to pick him up from Tunisia and take him back to Europe and so on. He delivered in, 18, in, in, in 801, Isaac delivered Abul Abbas to Charlemagne in tremendous... No, who in Europe had seen an elephant? <laughs> right? And uh, phenomenal, phenomenal story. Uh, before you ask, the answer is we don't know. The historians argue over that. You were about to ask me whether it was an Indian or an African elephant. <laughs> now, right. Uh, that elephant has a whole other history that happens after that, but that's the famous elephant that he got from Harun al-Rashid, delivered by a Jew. Just to show you how Jews were empowered and enculturated during the Carolingian Renaissance. So much so, in fact, that towards the end of the reign of Louis the Pious, and I'm telling you, who issued who issued edicts regarding toleration and Jews that would be the envy of even the most pro-Jewish political rulers. I mean, seriously, could have indicated that, you know, things might have gone very, very differently in Christian Europe had the Carolingian dynasty 
continued like that. But unfortunately, one second, unfortunately, Lewis divided up his kingdom between his three sons. He didn't nominate one ruler. And that is the origin of what is eventually going to involve, evolve into France, Germany, Italy, and all the different breakup of Europe that it eventually became. And by the time we only have to get a couple more generations and the rulers through various pressures, but particularly the economic pressures of Christians and priests and the theological pressures, things are no longer that good for Jews. Very quickly. Yes, skills. What are the skills that Well, Jews were engaged in trade, and even Spain, especially, and some Jews were engaged in agriculture. As particular, Jews in that age were particularly known to be dealing in wine, in silk. So there was a lot of trade. Uh, but Jews also multilingual. Lots of contacts. Lots of contacts. One of the major reasons Jews were trusted as diplomats and to carry money and to deliver messages and to do things is because they knew a Jew from here could walk into a shul here and within five minutes be immediately trusted. You know that. A Jew walks into a shul today, you'll know in five minutes if that's someone who knows what he's doing, if he knows what a shul looks like, if he understands, if he's Jewish, if he's, what he's saying is true. Not always, but... So they, Jews had to, and linguistically, Jews were familiar with the different languages, the different layouts. That's what Jews do. And that picture of what Jews do had already started developing in Europe. Now, the thing is that, that the Carolingian Renaissance got so intense that one of the great scandals of the 840s was that a Christian, a Catholic bishop called Bodo converted to Judaism. That kind of thing doesn't happen very often and certainly doesn't happen in medieval Europe very often, but it happened and that really woke people up again. Bishops are converting to Judaism? What the, what the Carolingians going on here? Obviously, even with a more tolerant society for Jews, there's no way that Bodo could stick around in Europe, so he went to Muslim Spain to live. Interestingly, and I'm not going into this in detail, but interestingly, when he's in Muslim Spain, he starts a correspondence with a guy called Pablo Alvaro, who was a Jew that had converted to Christianity, also living in Muslim Spain. So their correspondence is fascinating. They're each trying to convince each other of who's made the bigger mistake. It does sound like a joke coming out of it, but fascinating, fascinating. Pablo Alvaro. Now, I want to go back to Babylonia for a minute because one of the things we need to talk about is the noticeable, noticeable in this period of the 800s, the late 700s and the 800s, once again, due to the fairly dominant effect, that impact of Yehudai Gaon's entire push and project for the preeminence of the Babylonian Talmud and of the Jewish academies of Babylonia over the study academies of the land of Israel, because 
now that the Christians and the Sassanids are all gone, it's all Islam. So there are Jews living in Jerusalem, there are Jews living uh, in uh, Tiberias, there are Jews living right throughout the land of Israel, and they have their own Torah academies. One of the few things <coughs> that Babylonian Jewry allowed the rabbis of Palestine to do was to set the calendar, but apart from that, only because that was traditional, but apart from that, they regarded Judaism as it was taught in Palestine as distinctly inferior. Those tensions actually became quite acute. We're going to look at how some of them actually developed into full-blown rifts in next week's talk. But there is a letter that is sent in the early 800s from Babylonia, a famous letter. We're not even entirely sure whether it was sent to the land of Israel itself or whether it was sent to communities over here in Kerouan and so on about the land of Israel because until a still, all of these communities somehow still felt within the domain of the land of Israel rather than Babylonia. And a big scholar, a scholar called... Some of these people have such cool names. We should reintroduce these cool names. Yeah? Pirkoi ben Baboy. <laughs> now, Pirkoi ben Baboy... Pirkoi is actually a Persian name. Pirkoi ben Baboy wrote a letter and a whole essay slamming, slamming Palestinian Jewish practices. They're all Amaratsim, he says. And do you know why they're all Amaratsim? Do you know why they're all ignoramuses? Because they don't have the true tradition. They lived under Christianity. They did this, they did that. They were oppressed, misken, you know, Rachmanus, but when they got themselves together, they took a shtickle from here and a shtickle from there and they patched it together and now they teach it as Torah, but it's not really Torah. Moreover, we're hearing in Babylonia, he says, and they are getting complaints, that some people are using the digested halachot as produced by Yehudai Gaon and, and, and Shimon Kayara as their actual practice. You should know that you can't do that. The people you should be listening to, the only people you should be listening to are the rabbis in Babylonia who are studying the Talmud. And then he has a massive attack on Palestinian customs. Therefore, we start to see the alignment by communities under Babylonia to standardize as much as possible what Judaism actually is. One of the distinct features of Palestinian Jewry was that their cycle of the reading of the Torah was not yearly, but triennial. They read the Torah and went through it every three years. In Babylonia, they went through it in a year, according to the weekly portions we now have. Interestingly enough, the reform movement of the 20th century, in some places, has gone back to triennial reading. Yep. Another example... Second day Rosh Hashanah. Two days Rosh Hashanah in the land of Israel. That shows a pretty clear example of, you know, Babylon speaks. Let's, we, we follow. So, that's an interesting feature. The tensions between Babylonia and the land of Israel I'm laying the background of because they're going to come back next week in the 900s. And as if all those intellectual and different threats weren't enough, and they're only going to get greater, because next week, when we talk about 
the greatest of all the Geonim, he's going to be dealing with all of this. The guy whose figure just towers over the Gonic period. He's, we're not there yet. He's going to be dealing with all of these issues. But something else happens. We've seen, we've seen attacks on rabbinic authority from the Karaites. We've seen attacks from the land of Israel. We've seen attacks. I mean, who knows what Pirkoi bin Baboy would say if he came along today and saw the practices and customs of the Ashkenazic Jews of Melbourne. He'd be, he'd be totally alarmed. Totally alarmed. He'd completely lose his banana. No, Chulant is a great example. Chulant is actually a rabbinic thing in response to the Karaites. I'm very glad you said that. The Karaites actually argued that you can't light fire on Shabbat. But we're not onto the Karaites. I'm talking about Anand bin David. And so the rabbis insisted that you actually eat a hot meal on Shabbat lunch to show that you can keep food on a heat source that is lit before Shabbat. Not that you, you can't light it on Shabbat, but if it's lit and prepared before Shabbat, you can use it as a heat source. Um, as if that's all, that's not enough. A guy called, who we know through history as Chivi al-Balchi, cool name again, or either Chivi al-Balchi or Hiwi of Balch. Balch is in Afghanistan, which had a sizable Jewish community, and Hiwi al-Balchi writes a book or a pamphlet that is going to go on to also be quite an influential document because he writes 200, and what he calls 200 unanswerable questions on the Bible. This is an astonishingly new phenomenon. People like to think that biblical criticism and skepticism is a product of the post-enlightenment. It's a product of the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. But already in the 9th century, Hiwi al-Balchi is writing these books and actually starts getting a whole lot of followers and has to... But, but these are questions not on interpretation by any particular rabbinic school. This is not against the Karaites or the rabbis in their interpretations. They are strictly about the Bible itself. Obviously, responses to Hiwi al-Balchi are one of the few cases we see in Gaonic times where the rabbis and the Karaites banded together to respond to these challenges and accusations against the Bible. Now, unfortunately, we don't have his book anymore. The only parts of his book that we have, and I wish we did, it would be fantastic if we did, the only parts that we have are questions that are quoted in the literature of later writers who are talking about how this question was asked by Hiwi of Balchi. And we know that it had an effect because several Geonim and several medieval writers are still having to deal with these issues. And he had a following. You know, I mean, questions, questions. You know, why did God do this? And why is that? And why doesn't God stay in heaven? And what's he got to do? You know, the sort of things that, you know, if you took a bottle of vodka and you sat at the back of a shul one day <laughs> and you said to yourself, I'm going to ask 200 unanswerable questions on the Bible, that's what you'd come up with. Anyone can do it. But he did it. Now, there's two more important Gaonim. One of them is very famous, possibly even the second most famous Gaon of the Antigonic period. 
and I need to touch upon him because they're all also the second half of the 9th century, the late 800s, and they show us something. They're not just, I mean, if we were to talk about all the important Geonim, we would be here till the morning. Yeah? It's 500 years worth of Geonim. I'm just picking the ones that, whose contribution really kind of shifted things. And one of the ones who shifted things is a Gaon called Paltoi Gaon. And Palto Gaon, who I believe was at Sura, sent the first ever full copy of the Talmud to Spain. By now, by now, under the Umayyad Caliphate, or Emirate that's going to become a Caliphate, the Jews of Spain are just starting to flex their intellectual muscle and curiosity. And bearing in mind also, it's extremely interesting that when we talk about the 800s, because we have a Jew-tolerant empire here. We have a Jew-tolerant empire here because under people like Harun al-Rashid, Harun al-Rashid starts an institute called the Bet al-Hakim. The wise house, the house of the wise, the library, the great library of Baghdad. Yep, these amazing treasures of wisdom. That's when people really started translating the classics of Greek philosophy and thought and science into Arabic. All of that's done in the golden age of the Abbasids under people like Harun al-Rashid. And here also, and here also in the 800s, the Umayyad Caliphate in Spain is also encouraging Jews and starting to lay the groundwork for what's going to become the golden age of Spanish Jewry. So the 800s, if you're in the time machine and you're whizzing past, it's worth stopping off for a few weeks. It's not a bad place for Jews, the 800s. But they're starting to go, well, wait a minute. We're starting to create a bit of a merkaz here, a bit of a center. We don't really have the fundamental texts. Surely the rabbis of Babylonia are not that much cleverer than we are. Let's have a look at the Talmud. All we've got, all we've got, they complain to Paltoi, are the digests. We've got people running around with bizarre Palestinian customs and people are quoting these digests and going, there's your Torah. And Paltoi goes, that's unacceptable. If, you can't, if you're not going to listen to us, then at least study the Talmud for yourself. So he sends them the first Talmud to Spain. But that is not as famous as what was sent to Spain in the second half of the 800s by Amram Gaon, who I say, as I said, probably the second most famous Gaon. And what was the unique and incredible contribution to Jewish literature and life that was sent to Spain by Amram Gaon, the first example of what? A Siddur. Amram creates the Siddur. And the Siddur that he puts together, the order of prayers and the style and mode of prayers that he puts together becomes the stem, DNA, of both what is going to become Nusach Sfarad and Nusach Ashkenaz. All the great Nuschaot of 
world Jewry, which became kind of stabilized throughout the Middle Ages, are evolutions from the first Sidur sent from Babylonia to Spain by Amram Gaon. It included as well Piotim, which is a bit odd because Pirkoi ben Baboi, Piot, was one of the things that he lambasted Palestinian Jewry for. What was the issue with Piot? Where did Piot come from? Elazar ben Kalir, who was living where in which empire? Byzantium, which had control over the land of Israel and was trying to interfere with liturgies and so on. Although Kalir probably lived in Italy, but all of these communities were using um, Piot. Pirakoi ben Baboy didn't like Piot, he slammed them for it. But within a generation, Amram is sending them a siddur that's containing Piotim as well as all of the standard structures of prayer. Of course, the Shema and its blessings, the Amidah. We've had the Amidah since the time of the Mishnah. But, at least, but, there's no specific acknowledged formula. No one's telling us what we're supposed to say, how we're supposed to pray, what the order is, where things come, when do we stand, when do we sit, when do we, when do, we do this, when do we do that. What happens here? What happens there? What happens if it's this day, if it's that day? A Siddur, the first Siddur. Huge development within Judaism. So within a generation, you've got the first copy of the Talmud and the first, cop and the first Siddur. They hadn't even written a Siddur for Babylonia. That's the interesting part. The development of the Siddur as a textual artifact only happens as a result of a request from Spain for an order of prayer. That's a classic example of what the Geonim were doing in relation to communities of the diaspora right throughout the Jewish world. The Geonim are creating the fundamental infrastructure of Jewish communities. The fundamental institutions, whether that's the Sidur, the Haggadah, the calendar, aspects of communal life, Hevra Kadisha, communal supervision of Kashrut, all of these things are created in the Gaonic period as a result of the demands upon them from communities all around the Jewish world. I mean, even in the times of the Mishnah, people who were leading services generally did it by heart. That's what it meant, that you had to be someone who knew how to lead the service. Here, they're sending it in the form of a book. This is a Sidur. Now, I'm just going to finish off with a couple of interesting people because, once again, if we're talking about the 800s in Jewish history and you're sitting at some dinner party and the subject of the Jewish history of the 800s comes up, and you would not want to be caught short on this and go, oh, well, I heard David Solomon talk about that. He didn't mention this. One extraordinary figure that pops up at the end of the 800s, he is one of the most famous travelers of Jewish history like a Jewish Marco Polo, but hundreds of years before Marco Polo, in a very famous series of journeys that he then wrote up into a book. You see, people are starting to write books. Not just the Talmud. Eldad Hadani, or Eldad the Danite. Now, Eldad the Danite in his book called The Travels of Eldad the Danite, if he is to be believed, and historians 
and scholars generally regard his travels as more or less what we might call exaggerated authenticity meaning that he probably did travel and he because we know that from the things he describes and some of the things he saw there are correspondences in different parts of the world but the overall narrative that he gives us is so wild that it's very difficult to take it all at face value but he basically went all the way down into Africa, all the way into Asia, maybe even as far as China and India. He came back, he went everywhere. And you only have to open up the first chapter of his book to get a sense of what it's like, because many of the things written by, and of course, in those travels, he's meeting Jewish communities, and some, and because in the Middle Ages they took every word he said as absolutely true, there are halakhic discussions in Babylonia about whether the communities he visited are doing the right thing or not. But in his very first chapter, just to give you a taste, anybody read Eldad Hadani? No. You should read Eldad Hadani. It's a ripper read because many of the things that happened there actually become kind of staple tropes of later travel literature. In his first chapter, Eldad Hadani and his traveling companion are shipwrecked and are washed up on the shore of Africa and captured by a tribe of cannibals who eat his friend straight away because he was fat but because Eldad was skinny they put him in a special hut to fatten him up and when they were just about to eat him he was rescued by some other invading tribe that then took him somewhere else until he got ransomed by a Jewish community and that's the pace and that's how it goes it's just wild but nevertheless we believe there is some basis to his travels because of the way that he describes things and the things he talks about. He is an extraordinary traveler and tells us a lot about that world. Trouble is, we're not entirely sure which parts are just blatant exaggeration. And I mean, he talks about, and once again, once again, he talks about a Jewish kingdom somewhere here. So people go, oh, the Khazars, except what he describes is actually people who regard themselves as the lost ten tribes. So he's got actually, you know, the tribes of Manasseh and Asher. So he describes them as tribes. He himself is a Danite. Now we know generally that we haven't really known, unless you're a Kohen and a descendant of Aaron or a Levi, yeah, we don't really know our tribes since basically the end of the first temple. So for the last 2,500 years we have, but no, he's got no problem. Oh, I'm a Danite, that guy was from Asher, that guy's from Shimon, that's it, they're living, the Reubenites are living there. Establishing major, major tropes, however, for much of medieval literature. Remember, you've heard me talk about the 16th century, right? So we know that when David Aruveni turns up in Venice, he says, I'm from the tribe of Reuben, and we're living on the other side of the river Sambatyon, which, by the way, Eldad Hadani also talks about the river Sambatyon, that famous river that can only be crossed on Shabbat and so on. All of these major travel tropes established, but a very, very important figure that is nevertheless taken seriously by the Geonim of Babylonia because of the things he says about those communities and have discussions about whether or not we can regard the halachot contained in the travel logs of Eldad Hadani as actual halacha. The other traveller, the other famous traveller who is contemporary with that, and I'm going to finish on this note, but it's too good not to tell you, this is not a well-known figure. This is obscure. You have to go deep into Gaonic literature to know this. And so 
<coughs> everything that I've spoken about till now would probably be regarded as things you would need to know for that dinner party. But the thing I'm going to talk about now is something you could contribute. And that is that another, there's another figure contemporary with Eldon who is noted for his travels. And that is Natronai, the Gaon of Pumbedita. In fact, he is Natronai II, because there was an earlier Natronai who I think was the teacher of Yehuda Gaon in the, a century earlier. Natronai II acquired a reputation, certainly in later literature, as a transcendental traveller, meaning that he harnessed and possessed the power to instantly travel and appear at different parts of the world at will. And we know that because he was in Babylonia and then suddenly, on a Wednesday, would appear in France, in Narbonne. By the way, those of you who go into the period of the Jewish, connection, Jewish connections with the Carolingian dynasty will find that a figure called Machir of Narbonne, a Jewish fellow of the community of Narbonne, was very close to uh, the Carolingians. So, so but um, Natronai Gaon would appear there for a few days at a time, teach the people Torah, and then he'd be back in Babylonia being, you know, the Gaon. Now, one of the later, later Gaon, Imrav Hai Gaon, uh, writes about this, a century and a half later, writes about this and goes, I don't think so. That's impossible. Remember? Remember? The Gaonim were rationalists for the most part. They weren't Uga Booga. They're into science, just like the Abbasid Muslims were. Into science, rationality, logicalness. That's what's going to give rise to the merger of science and philosophy and Torah that we're going to see in the succeeding centuries. Rav Gaon goes, I don't think so. I think there was someone who turned up in France who claimed to be Natronai Gaon or looked like Natronai Gaon, but I refused to believe that Natronai Gaon just suddenly appeared in France and then popped back to Babylonia when he wanted. These are two different types. But what is it telling us about this world? If we're talking <coughs> about travellers, we're talking about, in a sense, an expanding but unified consciousness of the Jewish world. No longer are we just dealing in isolated communities. There is a sense of connection. It might take months and months to go across that world, and it might still be dangerous, and it might be all sorts of things, but I am aware that there is a fundamental connection. I know I'm sitting here, and guys here are praying from the same Siddur. Yeah? And people here are connected to Jews back here. So there is a growing connection that's going to be very, very important moving forward. I have here some notes, and I just want to make sure that we kind of... Yeah, yeah, no, we, we, we kind of more or less did uh, cover these things. Oh, yeah, 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 just, just bear with me. Bear with me. I finished a minute early, so just give me this one thing I'm seeing on the notes I didn't cover, because you'll look at the notes and you'll go, what was that? Remember I spoke about Anan ben David? So it's actually interesting, and I should have gone to this in some detail, and I'm sorry, give me one minute and I'm going to this in a bit more detail. Anan ben David, when he, when he rejected the authority of the rabbis of Babylonia, yep, he's not Spinoza. 
He's not living in Amsterdam in the 17th century where he can go up yours to the Jewish community and just go and do his own thing. Yeah? He's not some liberal academic professor at Harvard in the middle of the 20th century who says, oh, I've decided the rabbis are talking nonsense. He's living in the Abbasid Caliphate in the 700s. What do you think is going to happen to him if he rejects the authority of the Resh Galuta and the Gaonim? He's going to be arrested and he's going to be imprisoned and he's going to be trialed and if he's found guilty he's going to die. Now, he's going to be executed. There's no toleration. You know, the Jews are tolerated and they're required to keep their own house in order. To disobey the Resh Galuta is to disobey the Caliph because the Resh Galuta's responsibility is to administer the rule of the Caliph. On behalf of the Caliph, two Jews. That's how it worked with minorities in the Abbasid Empire, Caliphate. So Anan bin David is in jail. And while he's in jail, he has an encounter with a very, very, very significant Islamic theologian who also happens to be under arrest called Abu Hanifa. Abu Hanifa is regarded as one of the four great early Islamic jurists that develops a whole school of thought that's still practiced today. So Hanifa says to him, I'm going to advise you on how to get out of this and survive this. First of all, you have to claim that you are a different religion. And you have to demand that the Caliph, Mansur himself, is at your trial. And you have to prepare yourself to argue against why your interpretation of the Bible is a completely different religious stream from the rabbinic interpretation. And Anbin David says, I can do that. And that is in fact what he does. This incredible encounter that Anan bin David has with Abu Hanifa saves Anan bin David's life, but it's really the core of the beginning of the whole Karaite movement. The Karaites saw themselves as the real Jews because their interpretation of the Bible was more authentic. And it wasn't the case of, you know, we're just a reformed department of Orthodox Judaism. Slightly different from how it went in the 20th century. Next week we will be talking about, we'll just deal with one century, we're talking about a lot of issues. So thank you for listening to all that. Thank you for listening. To find out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.